This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. And welcome in to episode 224 of our little podcast here called Film Tank. Alex Diegman here with you, along with the usual friends, Nick Cheney and Tucson Egan. We. Hi. <laughs> Je m'appelle Nick Cheney. Je m'appelle Tucson Egan. That was good. That was a good try. That was uh, good. Comment se dit c'est copycat? Uh, comment c'est comment ça? Okay. Sacre uh, bleu, so... invaders! <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so in addition to those two fine gentlemen uh, who are doing their best French sort of impersonations now? It's um, uh, baguette! <laughs> I'm not a part of this anymore. <laughs> oh, good for you, Tucson. Not co-signing anymore. I like it. Um... Our friend Brian, uh, Brian Turnbow, who has not been with us for a while. Um, c'est moi, been... c'est moi. Oh, wow. See, I can, uh, I, I can hang with that level of uh, French pretension as well. Yeah. Guys, it, this is great. I don't think I've been here for like a, almost like two years, I think. It's been it's, too long. It's been a while, man. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it too has. Long. Well, it's great to have you back. And Thank God for this under... virus. I uh, think under these <laughs> wonderful conditions... Uh, it's, it's, you know, Hey, you know what? At least it's bringing friends back together. So yes. that's one positive from a safe distance. <laughs> so, uh, the film we are going to eventually be reviewing today is portrait of a lady on fire. The French film directed and written by Celine uh, Siyama. Uh, and I'm sure Nick can tell us more about her because this is his kind of scene and I know nothing about her. Um, but when we get into the uh, film a little bit later on, we'll talk more about her and the other people who are in this film. Uh, before we do that, uh, something we didn't do on our last episode was a bit of a weekend review as everyone has had a ton of time to watch either television or movies or whatever they are doing um so we're gonna do that and i guess uh since i'm already talking i'll start us off a couple of things i want to mention that i've uh watched here since the start of this whole thing um both things i'm going to mention are actually space related and the first is the incredibly underrated well it's not really underrated it's a terrible trash movie but i love it just the same uh, and that is the amazing movie Armageddon. I am a huge fan of Armageddon. It came out in the late 90s. It is a piece of garbage. But you know what? 
it's a lot of fun and who cares about historical accuracy and scientific accuracy and all that. Um, it's a really fun movie and um, I just like it. I, I think that's the only thing that really needs to be said about it. It's Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck and a host of other people just doing this preposterous space adventure that scientifically makes no sense, but there's a lot of fun explosions and people dying in space and uh, oil drillers going to a asteroid that's going to crash into the earth and blow it up and heartfelt moments between Bruce Willis and Liv Tyler. Oh man, I don't know. I just love Armageddon. I know Nick is a fan too. So uh, I'd like to at least get a word from him on his thoughts on Armageddon. I don't know how long it's been since he's seen it, but I'm a huge fan and I absolutely loved watching this again as I have every time that I've seen it. Yeah, I've, I probably haven't watched the whole thing in at least six or seven years, but I'm definitely a fan. Um, I will say, I think if I were to rewatch it uh, sooner rather than later, which, you know what, this might be a good time to do that, um, I would watch it with the commentary because Ben Affleck is drunk. Uh, unfortunately, uh, on the as per usual, yeah, on the commentary, but it's actually gold, uh, and it's it's fantastic because he's just making fun of it while Michael Bay's uh, sitting right there trying to justify like the science behind it, and it's pretty hilarious. Uh, <laughs> but it's genuinely an entertaining picture. I will give you that. Yeah, and I mean, I know Michael Bay is kind of talk shit about it over the years a little bit and whatever but um for his films that are at least entertaining this is right up there towards the top of just good fun i mean i think the rock is probably still his best work but um this one is a lot of fun and i mean if you're just looking for good popcorn movie to watch of nonsense that's happening on the screen that you can just giggle along with and enjoy i think this is is right up there so uh, the other space film I want to mention is a, a rewatch I had from last year, and that was the Brad Pitt film, Ad Astra, which I thought I actually was going to like less the second time through. And surprisingly, I liked it more. Um, I thought it was uh, just a very good dramatic space adventure that happens uh, showing the relationship between Brad Pitt and his father, who's played by Tommy Lee Jones, and also... A lot of the futuristic type events that happened that seem like seem ultra realistic to me in this world that maybe could have happened if things would have went a little differently. And Applebee's um, on the moon. Hey man, that felt real. I got it. Tell felt you. really real, like uncomfortably real. <laughs> it, if, if 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 there were United States residents living on the moon, there would definitely be an Applebee's. And a place for like Amazon and other things like that felt so real. Just not even trying to advance society, just being like, well, we'll just be here. Actually, there's a line by Brad Pitt talking about how much his father would have hated it, that it was just nonsensical garbage that was taking place on the moon. Nothing to advance society, just moving their same depressing reality there. And it's like, ooh, that's deep. It's deep and it's unfortunately real. And as the movie, uh, actually, when I had seen it for the first time, I didn't love the last 40 minutes. I thought after we got to Neptune and had all the interaction between 
Tommy Lee Jones and Brad Pitt. It got a little bogged down, but I actually really enjoyed it the second time through and thought that their relationship and the idea of how <laughs> Brad Pitt had almost become this different person because of the idea of what his father was and how he was coping with that and how that was really difficult for him to move on from. And then we just see the other side of that where he just can't cope with it because the reality is, is uh, what are you going to do in this idea of this person that you've perceived as this godlike figure for 35 years or however long of your life is now just decimated. Um, it's pretty fascinating. I thought and it's not perfect, but at the same time, I really enjoyed it. and liked it more than the first time I saw it. Yeah. Whenever I think about that ending, I look back and I think about my disappointment and I feel like, you know what? I just got to let go. You know? Yeah. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just got to let go. I really enjoyed the, uh, the line between, uh, Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones when they first meet each other, um, like aboard that actual ship. And he's like, yeah, I never thought of you and your mother. And he, and he's just like, I know like, like the entire emotional journey to get to this point. Like he's already like come to a conclusion about his, about his father. And now it's just about like, just like closing accounts really. And I was just like, you know, it is what it is. Like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not ruled by you. <laughs> like The other thing about it that I didn't really think too much about the first time through is that this notion that Tommy Lee Jones murders the rest of his crew and they don't go along with his plan. Um, and to get to him, Brad Pitt murders the crew that he's with, um, which is um, pretty... Like father, like son. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, but... Uh, it's 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 it feels real it, oddly in terms of murdering people. It feels kind of subtle, actually. But at the same time, um, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a very good film, and I'll say um, I feel like Nick was kind of the outlier, at least from what I saw in my letterbox um, people that I found. I know it's not that many, but it seems like most people thought that this was a pretty good film. And I know Nick, you were pretty lukewarm on it, so. Uh, I'm happy that seeing it for a second time, but I liked it even more, and I'm uh, glad it's pretty good. Alex, have you seen, because uh, I, I know you were talking about devs um, and all that, had you seen the Alex Garland film Sunshine uh, that Danny Boyle directed, I think right be- before uh, Slumdog Millionaire with... Um, uh, yeah, with Cillian Murphy and yeah, Chris, Cillian Murphy Chris Evans. and all that. I was wondering if how you would compare similar kind of deep space, you know, big decision making, consequential. Uh, if you had seen that one yet, or if you haven't, I would I recommend following up with that. I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't seen it. I'd like to see it because I, I really I, enjoyed it. I'm glad to hear it. I, yeah, I, and I, I I need to jump back on because from everything I'm hearing, Devs has gotten better as it's gone on, and I didn't love the first episode. I know Tucson's enjoyed it so far, so yeah, I'm, I'm catching gonna, up. Yeah, I'm probably gonna jump back on because I've heard as it's gone on, it's gotten better, which I'm I'm glad to hear. Um, but I, I'm definitely gonna check that out. I'm, I'm you know I'm in for deep space fun uh, in, in that particular way and. Um, Alex Garland, and even though Danny Boyle's not great, but um, I think the one thing that Boyle nails, though, in this um, in um, in Sunshine, is this sense of um, claustrophobic dread 
in this deep space mission. The sound is eerie. The camera angles are very tight. Um, and it, it, and there's is kind of ludicrous as the premises to reignite the sun is um, there. I think it feels like they got the science of the psychology of the astronauts as close to what it would be to actually carry through with it. Hmm. Right on. Well, uh, again, I'll have to check it out. It sounds way better than that Cloverfield space movie that came out a couple of years ago. So that's good. That is probably our lowest rated film that we've ever done on film tank to my memory. Well, it means we didn't do an episode on a million ways since I in the West. So that's good. Yeah. Thankfully. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on. Um, Nick, why don't you let us know anything? You, I, I know you've been watching quite a bit lately, so uh, why don't you fill everybody in? Well, thank you so much, Alex. Uh, yeah, I've watched, like, uh, I think I counted it uh, yesterday or today, and I've watched, like, almost 40 movies in the last two weeks. Um, it's been... <laughs> it's been a tr- that's, probably not a, that's probably not a record. No, but it's going to get up there. Uh, it's, you know, it's only getting exponentially more, basically. Um, but actually, I've been using this time to watch a lot of uh, long movies, you know, that I've, like, been putting off. Whether it would be, uh, like, I rewatched The Irishman, uh, which I never thought I would rewatch, like, that soon. Um, it was actually better than I liked it the first time and I think it's very very good it's definitely my favorite uh gangster movie that he's done outside of Mean Streets but out of the trilogy of uh you know De Niro Pesci and whatnot uh that's probably my favorite of the three um trying to think hold on I'm looking at my letterbox here um I watched uh, oh, okay, I watched a really random movie that came out this year called uh, Vivarium, which stars Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Boots, and it's... I saw the trailer for that. Yeah, it's right up my alley in the sense that it's a Twilight Zone episode uh, stretched to 90 minutes, basically. Um, very hard sci-fi premise, um, in the sense that it's about a young couple who go to look for a house to buy, and when they get to the uh, the street with the housing developments and whatnot, um, every house looks the same, and it's very kind of creepy, and they get there, and then they're basically just, like, dropped off there. Like, the realtor just leaves them, and when they try to leave the neighborhood, they can't find their way out. Um, so they go back to the house, and a baby is dropped off on their driveway, and there's nobody in any other house. So it's a really bleak movie because it's about these two people who essentially get trapped into this domestic life that they didn't ask for. But, of course, then that kind of yeah, mirrors uh, uh, a very cynical take on you know, domestic bliss, which is that, you know, what's exciting uh, when you're young can kind of turn into your personal hell um, when you're forced to... Sorry, sorry to... Yeah. No, finish your thought, man. Sorry. No, just <laughs> when you're forced to live it out with no uh, chance of escape, basically. I was just going to randomly say that I rewatched Batman vs Superman last week, and yes. Jesse Eisberg's Lex Luthor is one of the worst film characters I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I could definitely see that. 
Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry. That's all I had. No, that's, that was important. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but no, Vivarium, I'll, I'll give it this. The first 40 minutes I thought were fantastic, and it definitely, in my opinion, doesn't quite know what to do with its concept, so it ended up being on the lackluster side for me, but I definitely recommend everyone check it out. Um, I think the two leads are fantastic. And if you're not afraid to watch a movie where children are like the devil and maybe, I don't know, you like want to see a child get murdered, it's a good movie for that because for a lot of reasons, the the two of them do not like their child very much and you'd have to watch the movie to really <laughs> see why. But it is, yeah, it's, it's great. Um... I also watched a movie called, hold on here, what did I, oh, I watched uh, the first part of Steven Soderbergh's uh, Che, the biographical film on Che Guevara, Uh, the Cuban revolutionist, well, technically he was not from Cuba. Uh, in fact, he always felt like an outsider, which was kind of funny. Um, and it's a film that's split into two parts, and I watched part one, but it very much stands up on its own as its own thing because it's all about the kind of rise all the way up until the party took over. And Benicio Del Toro plays Che. Um, Damien Bichir plays Fidel Castro. And a host of other people kind of show up in the fringes, uh, like Oscar Isaac as Che's UN translator. And this was back in like 2009 or something, you know. So, um, But it's a fantastic movie that, uh, as someone who doesn't like uh, biopics, this is like how you do it. Which is that you're not trying to portray the life of, but the, but the moment they had in their, in the sun and the philosophies and ideological conflicts that led to that and what they had to fight for and why it was so important to them. Uh, and it, it is, I thought it was fantastic. It does, it is an extremely balanced look, I would say, uh, because it pretty plainly shows the U.S. as kind of the villains and not like mustachioed, you know, evil, whatever, but like actually being blunt about the U.S.'s involvement in uh, Cuba's political strife and uh, the imperialist attitude that we had and still have uh, to this day. And yeah, it it was just pretty freaky to watch because it just so meticulously recreates so many key moments. And you don't have to know anything about anything to watch it. You just have to be willing to pay attention to... Uh, you know, everything, the dialogue and whatnot, because it's definitely a movie that moves by uh, at a fast pace, but if you're wanting to put in the time, it's just a great biopic, it's a great war film, not because there's that many scenes of uh, battle or anything, but it really gets behind kind of what it's like to logistically plan a war and why you have to make the choices you have to make, whether you, uh, you know, do this assault or you retreat here or, you know, vice versa and whatnot. Um, but I'm excited to watch part two. And uh, it's something I put off for so long, A, because of the running time, B, because it was a biopic, and C, because I'm not even that 
into historical depictions and whatnot. So it was kind of like a trifecta of things that I don't normally get into, but maybe it's a Soderbergh fanboy in me, but I, I just thought it was phenomenal and I thought it had a lot to offer. Um, and I could easily see myself rewatching again, so I'm mostly kicking myself for not watching it sooner. So, yeah, I'll uh, end it there, but uh, I will check back in when I watch Che Part 2. Right on, dude. Glad to, glad Ooh, to hear you. Uh, part playing. 2. Yeah. <laughs> glad to hear you. Probably, I've actually never watched it. I've, I've been interested, but I think I've you never... Would like it. I probably would. I've... I'm just a huge fan of Benicio Del Toro. I think he's great. This was a pet project for him. Like, he produced it. He wanted the script, you know, to get made. And Did, did uh, he Did he, Did he? he push Soderbergh pretty to Pretty much. This? Yeah, like, I'm, yeah. It, it was a marriage between after working, you know, together in traffic. traffic. He kind of yeah. was like, I want to do this, and I definitely only want to do it if it's in the right hands. So, but, um, but apparently it was Del Toro behind the scenes all the way of, like, fighting for it to get made so he's great he's a super underrated performer absolutely yep right on man glad to hear it so moving on to uh brian who's uh again rejoining us for the first time in a hot minute i know you uh obviously got a different experience going on now being a being a teacher during oh, yeah. this so yeah so and and having a a toddler at home so i can tell you that my diet is uh, a lot of Pixar and Shrek uh, at <laughs> this particular stage. So I've been able to kind of block that st- stuff out. But like when she goes off to, to bed and I can uh, get a, an angle in you know, to watch something of my choice, I um, the one thing that I, I, I'm a really big fan of um, really gritty mafia stuff. And um, the one uh, author... Uh, nonfiction. His name is uh, Roberto Saviano, and probably back maybe early aughts, he wrote a book. It could have been actually late nineties. Uh, he wrote a book called um, Gamora, and it was about the Camorran crime syndicate in in Italy. And they ended up making a, a pretty good uh, television show out of it. And the first two seasons of it are on um, on Netflix, and I absolutely love it. And can't get my hands on the subsequent seasons after that, but um, I, to my great surprise and joy, I saw that there was I um, uh, Amazon had picked up his more recent book called Zero Zero Zero, and the thesis of that book is that basically cocaine is really the lifeblood of how the whole global economy works, shipping and you know, politics and all these things. So he, he kind of threads together these three different um, uh, ideas from it. I, I have the book, I haven't read it, so I just kind of skipped it and went to this kind of fictionalized version of uh, of it on uh, on Netflix. I'm sorry, you, uh, on Amazon Prime. Did I say Prime? Uh, Amazon Prime. And I thought you were really quick going to say that the thesis was that cocaine is the life of the party. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, in addition, so it's not a either or. Oh, okay. uh, and so, and, uh, and so this, um, so it's, it's kind of, it, it's eight episodes and it kind of covers this kind of deal, which is a huge kind of almost like Shakespearean type of upheaval of power structure of an Italian crime family that they set out 
a huge deal that then creates kind of a, a Monterey drug family or sorry, drug um, shipment from Mexico that is then used by an American intermediary to bring this uh, huge uh, load of uh, cocaine hidden between, um, I think, uh, uh, jalapeno pepper cans or something like that. So there are three different story arcs kind of kind of told separately. Um, and so you have the total train wreck of what is going on in the crime and, uh, and violence of Mexico. And then you have the odd um, shenanigans that occur uh, in the shipping family. And that was um, Gabriel Byrne was the shipping scion uh, in the first episode. And he died because of complications of being shot. I, I don't remember if it was just a heart issue or whatever. And his children, um, I should look it up, uh, the daughter i don't didn't catch the actress's name i should have looked it up but um he was in valerian and he was also the green goblin dean saint dahan yes he uh was in this uh and he and they were the two kids who then have to somehow make sure that this deal goes through and they have to then escort this um shipment from um uh, from uh, Mexico all the way to uh, Italy and all these things go awry. And then you have all the things that are going, going uh, on in Italy as well. I loved it, um, but I like that type of stuff. I, it, it was just really gritty, violent, felt real, uh, not as kind of ridiculous as kind of some of the true crime stuff that you get like in Ozark or something like that, where, you know, like the cartel is in rural or rural uh missouri and and all that my wife was watching an episode of it last night it's like okay that's a little bit of a stretch uh that they would be such a pronounced thing where this one felt kind of real there was some different tricks you know kind of behind the scenes of how they get away with it type of stuff i love that so a uh, big fan of uh zero 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 so I suppose it's my turn to share what I have been watching for the past couple of weeks. Is that correct, Alex? Yep. Cool. <laughs> All right. So here's what I've been been watching in my, my quarantine time. Uh, so uh, I have been watching a lot of stuff that I typically would watch um, because... Uh, my lady friend has been coming over and we've been uh, making dinner and just like hanging out and stuff. So uh, we've had to sort of like split our tastes. Uh, she is a lot more uh, leaning more towards like sitcoms and horror. And I'm, you know, more focused on like science fiction and anime and stuff. So we decided to split the difference. And uh, I Tucson, actually returned. Can I just say really quick, it doesn't sound like you're practicing safe social distance would would i have yes because right? yes, we all need to take this virus very seriously and yes i am i'm yes i am <laughs> yes i am yes i am shut up <laughs> okay so um we decided to split the difference uh, so wait hold on a second here so so wait you're forcing her to be six feet away from you at all times <laughs> No, I'm not forcing her to be six feet away from me at all times. Can you please okay. can you please let me finish my yeah, my sure, week in review? Yeah, I all think right. my work here is done. 
<laughs> okay, so we're, we we recently finished uh, binge watching um, American Horror Story Apocalypse. Um, I actually fell off of American Horror Story at the end of the third season, Coven, uh, because I loved that season up until the end, and it was such a sour note to end it on that I just sort of fell off the entire franchise, as it were. But um, she convinced me that, like, no, no, this was actually really good. And I'm just like, okay, so we'll just try it. And uh, it is really good. It's, uh, uh, I don't think it's a spoiler now to, to say it, but it is an indirect, uh, well, it actually is a direct uh, continuation of the events of Coven and set in the same universe as Coven and as um, the, the first season, which is Murder House. Um, I liked the, the first three episodes because you really didn't know what you were getting into. Like, it just seemed like its whole own self-contained universe. And then the, the, the status quo is, in, is entirely shifted. And then it goes back like multiple weeks before the, the so-called apocalypse and shows how the characters of Coven are actually material to the events of like apocalypse and what are the stakes that play in that. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, the ending is again, kind of meh, but it's not as bad as Coven. So I, I count that as a step up. Um, and I've also been watching this, uh, this sitcom called uh, happy endings, uh, happy endings, which uh, ran for like three seasons. It's okay. <laughs> it's not great. Yes, Nick. No, I remember Happy Endings. There's a lot of people who are like, oh, Happy Endings was canceled. And I genuinely yeah. do think it was funny, but it was also not an all-timer. Yeah, it was not an all-timer. It also has like these really, really crude like race jokes that just haven't really aged that well. And I don't think it was that long ago before this was on the air. And I'm just like, ugh. But uh, besides that, it's, it's, uh, it's a fun. There's a lot of that. There was a lot of that in the uh, early 2000s. Oh, boy. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. What uh, is this from? Uh, let me see. I'm looking it up right now. Happy Oh, it's ending. from this decade. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, it's from the... Yeah. It's <laughs> maybe about eight to nine years old. It's, oh, it okay. started airing in 2011 and ended in 2013. Damn. So. Oh, so, so it... it yeah. Yeah. It's recent. Yeah. It has a, the Russo brothers as executive producer, so you know it's a mark of quality. I only mean that in half and just. I mean, they know how to handle people in terms of, you know, anything LGBT. They yeah. are on top of their... They've got the pulse on America on that. Yeah, they'll, they'll have the, the one scene where everybody's crying in a circle, and then they'll, like, have one person, like, talk about their experiences and then, like, tell them to stop talking and then move on to the rest of the story. To be fair, uh, Happy Endings is the product of somebody else, uh, right. the guy who's married to the girl who plays Penny. Um, oh, really? Russo's were just director for hires because that's what happens on television. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, now I see that. Yeah, David Caspi. Yeah, that guy. David Caspi. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 okay. It's, uh, it's an okay um, filler television uh, show that I'm willing to watch uh, on the background. So, yeah, that's what I've been watching so far. Right on, dude. Glad Just to, uh, make sure to wear yeah. a mask. Sorry. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
Thanks. Just saying for your protection. Uh, I, I yeah. appreciate you, man. I appreciate you too, buddy. Yeah. You can probably get one, but the hospitals can't, so that's fine. Yeah. My girlfriend is a doctor, so. Really? Yeah. Oh, how's she doing with all this? She's doing good. She's got masks. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. What's her specialty, or what's her, um, yeah, what's her specialty as a doctor? Oh, well, if we're going to dish on the podcast, guys. Uh... <laughs> we can edit this out. <laughs> yeah. If we're going to dish on the podcast. Wink, wink, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, she basically... Um, she's in her residency right now. Uh, she specializes in family medicine. See, you know what? Hold on, Tucson. Here's the thing. Before the episode starts when we're on <laughs> mic, you regale us with boring stories about your failed Zoom meetings in class. But on the podcast is when you first tell us you have a girlfriend. So this yeah. is not completely Who's on us. I've got a lot of stuff going on right now, man. I know. But we are only processing in the way it's being presented. Okay. And we love you. Oh, thank you. But practice social distance. I will. Thank you. Uh, So, uh, on our little podcast here today, we are going to talk about the movie Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which... Technically, it was released in the U.S. this year, but came out in 2019, premiered, I believe, at Cannes, uh, and obviously was very well received there. Uh, the film was directed by, as I mentioned, Celine Siyama, and stars Naomi Merlan, and also Adele Hiao, uh, and also features um, Valerie Goldina, who uh, people would have seen in the late 80s, early 90s, as she appeared in both the Hot Shots movies, Escape from L.A., and Rain Man. So that was interesting little side note. And I was like, she looks familiar. And then saw that, and I was like, oh, she's from the 80s. Right on. So uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire follows... Um, or sorry, it starts on an isolated island in Brittany, which is in France, uh, at the end of the 18th century, as a female painter is obliged to paint a wedding portrait of a young woman. Um, I'm going to start us off on this, but I thought since Nick knows more about sort of the history of this film and its presentation, maybe you could give the uh, listeners a little more info on this before I give my initial thoughts. Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to say that I really don't know much about this at all. <laughs> all right. I mean, I remember when it was like when it came out and people started hyping it up, so I took note of it. But I've never seen a film by uh, Celine Sciamma or uh, anything prior to this. Um, I was just super hyped because. Uh, I always support my uh, art house French lesbian dramas, and I was so I was glad to see one <laughs> getting their due. So, um, so unfortunately, yeah, I got nothing. Okay, well, there you go. There you have it. So I will start it off with them uh, after that ravishing introduction from Nick. That's uh, what film take is for, baby. There you go. Uh, I thought I would in, 
somewhat enjoy this because this seemed like a very well put together film. And usually, even if I don't love films like this, I usually somewhat enjoy them because of their quality and um, just how well everything is sewn together throughout the entirety of the picture. And in general, I thought this film was fantastic. I thought the performances were good. I thought just the set design and selection of settings for this was fantastic. Some of the shots from the ocean or inside of rock formations or climbing up hills just looked fabulous. I was blown away by how good the cinematography and the set design was for this film. It was great. And add in that this has this really... um, wonderful and heartbreaking story uh, throughout that really has a hard time I feel like finding where I land on this because this is a terribly sad story uh, on the onset for me but at the same time it is wonderful that these two women found each other and got to have this experience in their life Um, And then we hear the whole story told and we see just the wonderful joy that is had by them in this brief encounter that they're able to have. Um, And that part of it is obviously wonderful to see, but then you see all the just horrendous things that happen in terms of this idea of her being forced. And when I say her, I mean the painter, um, the character of Marianne, who is, um, not forced, but she's commissioned to paint uh, the other character, Heloise, uh, paint her portrait that is going to be given to her potential husband. Um, and, and in reality, her portrait will decide if he is going to go through with this um, betrothal, pretty much. And yeah, that is just horrifying on this idea of a woman being forced in this position, let alone a woman who has, for the most part, fallen in love. Online uh, dating with... is hard, man. Or, or for that matter, a woman who inherited that betrothal after her own sister uh, died. It's fucked up, man. There's a lot of crazy nonsense happening in this movie, but totally is legit because this is apparently just what happened. I mean, the mother talks about it, that here's my portrait. This is what he saw, and it's like, ugh. And then you have the other idea of, of these two women who, just in all reality, are just lesbians, and they love each other, and that is... And, and I think that's the hard part about it, is that this is such a beautiful movie because you get to see this brief time period where they're able to spend time together. And that is, in reality, all we see of this film is... She gets dumped off on this island. She literally is in this horrendous situation where she has to jump out of the boat to get her um, painting canvases back after they fall out, which is kind of a weird situation that happens anyways. But after that, we just see her living her life with Heloise and also the uh, maid whose uh, name is Sophie. And that's a whole other storyline that we'll get to later on in the uh, episode. But Everything that happens, this is the entirety of the film and the crux of from the whole start to ending of what we follow, which I think is is really important here because 
we see these women as they are living their lives and a lot of their world has been decided for them, but they are getting true joy out of this really brief time period they have. Um, and that's something that I really picked up on throughout the entirety of this film is that we get to be in this very brief, joyous occasion that happens in the women and the lives of these women who, who have a really um, tough go of it following this, we have to assume even though the, the painter Marianne may have further attempts in life to be a real trailblazer and pioneer, um, she's still not going to ever probably reach real happiness in this time period. And obviously, Heloise is probably not going to either, as she has been betrothed to this man. Um, we do know that she does end up being with him for at least you know the early part of her adult life. Um, and then who knows what happens with uh, the maid Sophie, but uh, a lot of really tough things going on. But um, the one thing I did really like a lot about this film is it did show this short time period, you know, if it's a month and a half, two months, whatever it is, um, that these women were truly happy together when the time they got to spend together. And uh, it, was, it was something inspiring about that, even though the the horribleness of, some other parts of their lives. So I was a fan. There's a lot more to get into. This is a lot. There's a lot going on in this film. The last scene is phenomenal. Um, I don't know if I've seen a Denouement scene that good in a hot minute, um, but this is a really good film that there's a lot to chew on. And I, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, Nick, moving on to you. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm a big fan of this movie as well. I was, very taken with the central romance, as I think it is hard not to be, uh, unless you are either A, a bigot, or B, a philistine. But uh, I, I just think that the two performances here by the two leads are uh, terrific. Um, as Alex outlined, just the kind of central concept of what brings them together is just such a delicate tightrope for the two to have to kind of walk through and um it, it's just beautiful by the time that they do uh you know embrace each other that it is so well earned and whatnot but it, before that point there's still so many feats of uh filmmaking and other things at play here that are just uh, dazzling. I mean, some of the scenes by the cliff and whatnot are fantastic when um, when she's running, uh, you know, towards the cliff and then just stops. And some of the camera movements throughout the house are uh, just wonderful. And um, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I will say for the most part that I thought this was basically fantastic but not uh all-timer for me there was something that was slightly at a distance and not necessarily because of the reserved tone of the movie itself but just because i have seen a lot of uh not tragic but inevitable romances uh that end in you know separation and whatnot that are not meant to be before I've seen him between straight people I've seen him between gay people so it it not that it has to be unique but it did rise above what I've seen before but I wouldn't say that um, it offered much outside of its own 
uh, mastery of technique and whatnot, which is sometimes all you need, and certainly that's the case here. Um, but the thing I think I kind of like most about the movie was its sense of sisterhood. Uh, this is... It reminded me of a movie um, that I think I put in my top six list for the year it came out called The Duke of Burgundy, which is also about a lesbian relationship, uh, albeit one of a very different kind, uh, a bit more devoted and committed, uh, but with a certain tension to it, because in that movie there's a dom-sub uh, roles being inhabited, uh, but in that movie, it's striking because you never see a single male in the entire movie, and in this movie, you really don't either, I mean, they, they do appear sometimes, like, as extras, like, toward the end and whatnot, but in general, this movie has the same sense of, uh, of kind of female empowerment where it literally just kind of shuns all males from its purview to show a community that can only exist in the absence of males and we kind of see it too uh in a in a small effects like when they're down at the beach um and obviously with the handling of abortion and whatnot and we'll talk about all those you know in larger details, but I was more floored by the way this movie very casually navigated these uh, feminine relationships in a very brutal historical time that's usually reserved for very harsh conditions and rigid uh, archetypes, but here uh, things were a lot more free-flowing uh, without being quote-unquote modern. Uh, so that's probably where I'll end my opening remarks by saying I, I pretty much I loved it all, and I especially loved um, some of the ways the more minor characters were utilized, uh, especially as a way to kind of support uh, the two central leads and, and their journey between each other. I think that is one thing I took away from this, Nick, is that I totally agree that this is a, you know, end of the 18th century, terrible, harsh time, especially for anyone who is outside of the norm. And I mean, a woman who is also a lesbian at the same time, this is not a good time for them. And yet at the same time, um, we get a glimpse into this small time period where they can actually be free and find true happiness in this small, tiny glimpse of their lives. Um, oh, which yeah. Is, it's, it, it's, it, yeah. I was going to say, it doesn't, uh, you know, fall into like, um, what do you want to say? Um, I don't know, uh, like historical devastation porn where like people are trapped in these circumstances and woe is them because if they were only born so many years later or whatever. Kind of like um, that movie that came out recently. It wasn't historical, but that one with uh, Rachel McAdams, Disobedience, where that was like, let's throw stones at lesbians kind of drama. Um, yeah. I'm only slightly exaggerating. <laughs> Um, where this was more of an, a relationship movie above all else, which is what I thought was uh, very welcoming, and, and that was definitely a fresh take on its uh, uh, setting and era. Right on. Uh, Brian, uh, what are your initial thoughts? On yeah, I, I really... Fire? 
I think I had uh, mentioned this uh, when we were texting back and forth and, and prior to recording this. Uh, I, I enjoyed this movie as much as I think I have uh, any movie in recent memory uh, in terms of how it really it fired on so many different cylinders uh, for me. Uh, the tensions that were building in terms of the way they structured the plot, um, the kind of the technical things that you had touched uh, on um, and I, Alex, you put it very well. The I, I felt that the, the Denimois was breathtaking um, from the moment, and we'll get into this as we we go on. But the reveal of the portrait uh, at the end, and then the last scene of her complete just absorption into feeling the music as how that came back. And it's the idea that, you know, we have a, a film with no soundtrack at all, the conspicuous absence of music, and then for it to come back in that very last scene, flooding over and, 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 and just occupying every emotional space that she had at, at that moment was just such an incredible payoff. Um, and then to go back to something that you, Nick, had said as well, which is, you know, for the three of us, or the four of us in, in here as as uh, as males, uh, and and looking on the outside, yeah, and the outside looking in uh, on this, um, you know that that use of the the type of binary of a world that we would not have access to, and to have witnessed the unspoken confidence and love of that sisterhood that you had mentioned, I think was just so. Um, wonderful and you know and but brutal as you said like that scene as she was going through the abortion procedure uh and uh but in in that kind of little um uh, kind of uh, hut and, and where she was uh, where they brought her in um but the just just just, just, just sorry brian yeah no, good. i know we're gonna hit on it more and it's something definitely we're gonna want to talk about when we're all talking about this but the the abortion storyline that really goes on for like 20 minutes. Like yeah. it is, it is not just that one scene. Like it is an everlasting attempt that is going on. Um, and there, there's a lot there for you. And uh, we'll get and to what's interesting is how it kind of like, I mean, when did you pick up on certain things when they're talking about the various different stones that they had to put, like, like it took me a couple like minutes to kind of figure out what's going on. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. I see what's, what's happening here. Um, I, yeah, I just, I loved uh, this movie on, on so many levels. I'm such a sucker for um, that type of um uh, that type of love story uh, too, whereas these, uh, you know, the type of uh, forlorn uh, lovers where they, you know, I just, that, that stuff always gets me. So I'm, al I'm already there anyway, but um, just the, the, just the, even just the, the subtleties of tracing their eye movements and how they were darting against each other. I mean, there's just, there's also this incredible, sensuality uh that was communicated without having to be physical that was just in incredibly uh effective to me so i mean i this is uh i this was a real find i i I'm, because i don't without your kind of suggestion or nudging i mean i, I might not never have seen this this movie so i'm very uh, very happy that you guys put this in my orbit huge huge fan Well, Nick gets all the credit for that. He's the one who uh, was the brainchild of this. So, Woo. yeah, I wrote and directed it. 
Uh, so, uh, moving on to Tucson, getting our initial, uh, first thoughts out of the way. Yeah. Um, I have to say that I thought that this film was masterful. I really, really enjoyed it. It has this, like, it, it, it's hard to know where to start, like from top to bottom. It's just such an, an extraordinary film. Uh, I think, I guess starting at the beginning is like the first time I think I ever heard about this that was ever on my radar was, um, during the last Oscars, I think, uh, where uh, it purportedly had, had been snubbed because it was, I think it was um, a a contender for uh, France's submission for like best foreign film. But I think La Miserable, like a, a Les Miserables um, adaptation, uh, like trumped it for some reason or another. And, uh, but I do know that uh, Bong Joon-ho was like a terrific fan of it and that like this film is actually distributed by neon which is the same company that distributed parasite so they're sort of like uh publisher mates in that sort of uh way and so uh, i i do know that the that both directors are are sort of familiar and friendly with one another um what can i say about this film other than it is it is so remarkable in how it it, it, it strikes a through line for being both not only like sedate, but also aesthetically sensuous. And one note that I, that like I wanted to touch on that Brian talked about was the lack of a, of a score and a soundtrack. That's what's something that really uh, uh, struck out to me, like, especially in the, one of the opening scenes where uh, Marianne like jumps off of uh jumps off of the boat in order to uh, grab after supplies. And she's basically just trudging uh, up that, uh, up that beach with the person behind her, just like carrying her effects and things. And you just hear the crash of the waves. And it just became so prominent throughout the entire film of how like not only the absence of music and the, the, the sort of like foregrounding of all forms of diegetic sound when it comes to the, the, the exterior sounds, the interior of the actual estate, um, the echo, um, the, the echoes of people like moving about, um, the the sort of tone of people's voices as it carries throughout these spaces. Like it's just, it, it's wonderful sound design, and it's it's even more uh, like punctuated for the fact of like when music is actually present. Like when they go to like the sort of like outdoor bonfire festival, and you have like these. Um, villagers and people just basically singing this song and i'm like i was trying to like trace the notion of like is this diegetic or non-diegetic because it just feels like it's really mixed very very well um and of course the the denouement is absolutely extraordinary um i'm trying to think of her name adele hanel uh, who plays police uh she is remarkable like how how she's able to carry so much uh with just the pure expression of her face. And I, and I knew as soon as that song started, I knew what that song was, even though it only briefly appeared in a, in a sort of uh, uh, a malformed sort of fashion, a very simplistic fashion. And yet for her, it brought up so many powerful memories. Like the, the, the performances on par of these, of, of these two lead actresses is just phenomenal. Um, I will say that something that did catch me off guard uh, before the initial, before the the, the abortion storyline with her character, uh, the character of Sophie, who is like the uh, 
the handmaiden or the 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 servant around the the house like i was so struck by her sort of unaffected demeanor that it was almost comical to me like it almost felt like something out of a wes anderson film like she felt like that like like the kind of character how she was just very no yes about every single um uh question that was posed to her but as she sort of became closer both to marianne and Hulais, um she began to open up and began to like sort of like vent out her emotions in that sort of way so it was really cool to see that sort of coax out of that character um the storyline uh when it comes to Holois, uh I, I can never say her name correctly i apologize um Holois, Holois, good, yeah yeah hello Heloise's um uh sister who i don't believe is ever named or if she is named it's very briefly um and and when Holois is speaking to Marianne about like what do you know about the person that I'm going to marry is like I don't know anything and it's just like I know that he's a man from Milan is like yeah that's about as much as I know which is absolutely terrifying and like it 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 becomes this sort of silent notion in the background of well she doesn't know who this man is she was never meant to actually marry him because she was in this convent and basically she's like the the substitute who is being offered up in lieu of her, her sister who for whatever reason might have, or, or strongly like implied to have taken her own life in order to avoid marrying this man. Uh, the the other thing, the the other thing that's really, really, and I mean, it's not the same era, but we get the same kind of story from a lot of, films in you know yesteryear uh the one i think of that comes to mind is actually titanic the james cameron movie mm. um where um rose dewitt Bucator's mother is totally just like you need to marry him because we need the money and it's like oh boy yeah. this is a this dowry is what this but that's what it was yeah like, but I, th- I think that's the thing that's so effed up about that era and about a long time of human history is this idea of the people who you should trust the most your parents especially your mother if you're a girl Mm -hmm. um completely not caring about your personal feelings whatsoever yeah it's all about the family it's all about the family and it's all about i did this before so now you have to yeah, uh, is oh, it's rough. Yeah, aristocrats are uh, a whole different breed, that's for sure. I, I think that the gender dynamics in this film uh, that we've sort of touched on before are really, really fascinating. Uh, kind of going back to something that uh, Marianne actually confided to uh, Heloise um, about how she's not allowed to draw men because there's some type of arbitrary distinction for the fact that like, because she's a woman, she can't draw men, which actually precludes her from being able to draw most prominent subjects, most accepted subjects of, of, of portraiture and painting, like in the 18th century, which denies her the ability to be able to advance through that field. And that at the end, when she was showing off uh, some of her paintings and she saw uh, Heloise, uh, her portrait uh, with her child um, and how somebody was, was asking, Hey, 
So uh, is this your your father's? Like, no, it's not my father's. I submitted under his name because that's what you had to do. That is literally the only way that like you could actually show your portfolio and be taken like seriously, like peripherally to be like, oh yeah, it's like I I did this, but keep it on the low. But if you need somebody to paint your portrait for you, I can do that. Like, just let me let me know. It's like, yeah, it, the, 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 it's so fucked up. It, it really honestly is. Um, but one of the things that I really enjoyed about this film was um, I like production art. I like production art a lot and the, the simulation of, of art throughout the process of the film, just because the different uh, the different paintings that are ostensibly um, uh, created by Marianne are so beautiful. Like the actual namesake of the film itself, we only see that portrait for like a bit in the opening. And I just wanted to stare at it and I wanted to see what the inspiration behind it was. And I did get to see the inspiration behind it. I thought it was really cool, but I just love that painting. Um, and like the subsequent, uh, iterations of the the portrait that she was commissioned to uh that she was commissioned to create sort of follow along the same arc as her emotional arc because the first portrait that she did what she was doing in secret like i i looked at that and i thought that doesn't look like heloise at all like it really doesn't um and it has nothing to do with whether or not that's how marianne sees her or not i just don't think that looks like her at all um but as uh, the film went on and like more of these, these paintings are being revealed. Like when you get to the final product, it is, um, it's uncanny. It's really, really beautiful. And I think that, um, just showing how the, the emotional barrier between these two is sort of eroded and how it's sort of, sort of collapse into one another and, and their sort of emotional entanglement and interest in one another sort of begets this, this very beautiful series of, of art that, is both present in the film and stretches on uh, uh, throughout the end of their lifetime. Yeah, I mean, um, I feel like we're all just pretty much throwing rose petals at this film because it's um, beautiful. Yeah, it, yeah, it's good. I mean, yeah. it's 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 worth it. So, just uh, one more, you know, thought to follow up with that, Tucson. I think that 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 idea that that she was so committed to that art only the payoff of what we saw you know that she jumps out of her boat to get the uh you know the 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 canvas in such a way like i mean what an incredible threat that must have been like a to be to get a chill to drown and you know and and die because of some weird sickness afterwards like it just it shows that level of commitment to her craft that so early on just solidifies that that she is so talented and passionate about this particular craft. I mean, again, it just, there's just so much in this movie that again, it, it just, it, it just builds on each, each part. Just, it, it, it's just it, the iterative nature of its brilliance is, is just ongoing. I just, I love it. It's like Marianne's the water to Eloise's fire. Um. I thought you were going to say Marianne is the one, and that would have been awesome. <laughs> there's something else that I um, no, that Agent I, Smith. There, there's something else that I looked up about um, the film that didn't come 
through to me because I'm a primary English speaker. Uh, but uh, apparently, like their relationship and the arc of their relationship is communicated even through their grammar, like how they agree to like uh, refer to one another through like the 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 indication of vu, which is like very very intimate, versus like how you like address somebody who you're like many many degrees distance from and respect and it's like and that actually comes to uh the floor when um when they're saying goodbye to each other for the last time and i also love the shot of when marianne is opening the door and uh heloise uh tells her to turn around in a very casual way like again for the grammar of like what they're saying and you see just like the the beam of light and the the darkness that just sort of like frames her eyes um, as she's looking at uh, Heloise for the last time. I thought that was a really, really beautiful shot. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to randomly throw this out there and say, what did we all make of the ghostly shots of uh, Eloise in the, um, you know, in the door frame in the hallways that uh, basically apparition that shows up like twice, I think, to Marianne? Do you think, what did you think about, man? Well, for me at least, I thought it was kind of interesting because at first I thought it was a boilerplate, you know, just dreamlike, um, you know, uh, longing and whatnot. But the fact then we actually see the scene in which she's being fitted for, I believe, a wedding gown, and it actually looks like the dress, if not, is the same dress. Um, kind of elevated, is, yeah. yeah, elevated than what it obviously came before, uh, as if they are so, uh, by the end of the movie, so in sync and so, you know, whatever in love that she now sees her for who she truly is and that almost transcends space and time, which is also then obviously backed up by the denouement itself. But, uh, yeah, no, I thought that was a clever little almost call forward to uh, her finally appearing in the painter's mind's eye, basically. Yeah, I I felt like those parts of the film were just her almost unfortunately being haunted realistically by the idea of this is just what is going to be happening. And that is why she continuously starts seeing it more and more as we get later in the film. And then, um, yeah, that scene, when the last scene, when we actually see them together, the two songs referencing, is actually probably one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the film for me. I oh, totally agree. Totally agree. She, she wants her to turn around and come back and say it's okay, but it is not okay. Um, she's just got to leave because that's what she's supposed to do and that's what she does do. Um, and her visions of her, which actually were very beautiful also, um, as well in this weird Ghostbusters E type way, but not in like a corny way, but also that's just, what I it looks saw like the to me. little girl from, uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, okay. I can see that too. <laughs> totally. But just um, but adult yeah, it, size. It was... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, unfortunately for me, it was just a admission for her that this is ultimately what is going to be happening and what does end up happening which is terrible and heartbreaking i, I that scene alex th- 
the, it's like the walls were closing in and you, you felt it. And there was just the, the, the anxiety, the fear of like, Oh my God, this is happening. It, like, I'm never going to see this person again. And it, it, the the moment couldn't have lasted more than a, a tenth of a second. But when she hugged her and she nuzzled her nose into her shoulder for like just one last scent of her before she then just kind of like walked out of the room. I, I, heartbreaking. I mean, like I like that was like one of those scenes that I just I couldn't not keep playing in my mind of how painful uh, that was. Um, and there, you know, there's a lot of those kind of silly, um, but you know, heartbreaking things that people post on Facebook, you know, during this time that everything's going on, but someone had, had one and it was this, this line that said, love fiercely because this all ends. Right. And, and like, it's just such a, a, a maxim that's so true and haunting. And just that last scene, you know, of when they were together was just so, so crushing to me yeah so yeah that that was an incredible um that one just really just reached out and grabbed me for sure i will say uh i agree with uh what you guys are saying about the final scene weirdly for me the thing that almost made me like choke up the most was when uh, marianne hugs uh the mother because it's almost like this impulsive and accidental uh breach of you know their contract and uh, the the understanding of what she was there to do for a brief second because she can't control herself and the affection she has for her daughter is spilling over uh into a very tragic way and you you even kind of see the mom do a sideways glance almost but for whatever reason that was like really i don't know uh moving to me just because i wasn't expecting that um but then of course made all the more heartbreaking for how uh you know risky and how that could have gone the other way uh in a split second but luckily they didn't turn it into a melodrama or something like that it was just really uncomfortable to watch in in all the right ways Jusad, did you have anything on that scene before we move on uh, no, nothing else. Um, nothing I can think of, at least for right now. Yeah, man. Uh, so a couple of things that I have written down that I definitely want to hit on, and we'll start with the one that I mentioned we've talked about a few times throughout this episode so far. But it's just that final scene, which is really the denouement of this film. Um, there's a lot of to go, there's a lot happening in that minute. 10 second scene um mostly just the emotions that are happening there because on one hand this idea that this chance encounter is happening which is totally to me not a chance encounter because yeah the idea of them both showing up is somewhat realistic but at the same time she knows and that i'm saying Luis knows that Marianne loved that one part of the uh, Vivaldi uh, Four Seasons, and obviously Marianne loves it. So the idea of them both being in the same kind of area, um, and the idea of them both wanting to go see a performance of this happening, um, it totally makes sense why they would both be there in the same emotional place um and to me that really made that even that much more powerful but 
just the way that that was shot, the way that we close up in on her face and we can see her profile almost crying in tears of both joy and terrible heartbreak and sadness. Um, and it totally feels like we're looking at it from Marianne's perspective as she is the camera looking in to watching her and not the performance that's going on stage. That was just in such a short time period, just a incredible scene that um, one of the best scenes I've seen in quite a while. And to be a scene to end a film on is just fabulous in my opinion. Indeed. <laughs> Thanks, Tucson. <laughs> wow, that was tough. Good job, tough thing Alex. About doing these, the tough thing about doing these Skype podcasts is that um, you don't necessarily know who's supposed to go. Well, yeah, it's like we're all being polite. <laughs> it's tough to get a rhythm, I will say, for yeah. sure. Um, well, I'll just uh, <laughs> follow your lead. And, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I got. Thanks. Man. That's it. Wow. Well, I mean, maybe I had this more, film deserves better. I was more focused on my voice. Um, no, I I also did enjoy the the final scene. I actually will be a little bit of a contrarian bug and say that I have one extremely minor gripe with. The, the ending of this movie which is that I feel like when writing the script uh, they came up with two great ending and couldn't decide between the two so they just went with both because I was enamored with the painting uh, ending you know uh, with her seeing that the book was open to the same page she had drawn that portrait of her and whatnot. Um, and of course I also love the second ending, especially for the emotions and whatnot, but I almost wonder if there would be even more power if only one of them had, uh, room to essentially bloom, because it kind of felt a little didactic going from one to the other, um, in a way that the rest of the movie didn't fit that flow and editing rhythm and I say that as someone who loved both scenes individually and don't really take anything against either one of them but I was a little thrown by a and then I saw her in a painting and then I saw her at a concert and then I saw her outside the window and no but I um I I did enjoy both those scenes I uh just yeah whatever I um I would have dared the script writer to choose one lane. Okay. I mean, I, I'll, I'll disagree because I thought both were fantastic and I thought they both really work. So um, I, I wouldn't change anything about either of them. So that, but that's just me. Well, I guess I'll go fuck myself. <laughs> Do you, and just thinking about like the kind of cultural component of this in terms of seeing how this kind of plays out in a, a, a 2020 context in such a way. And, you know, again, kind of measuring this against us being straight males and, and all of that, which is, do 
are, are we aware of just how little things maybe have changed for some if you if you happen to be gay or lesbian and all that i mean i think that there are some permissions that have led up in society to some extent but we're still talking about a a, a group of individuals that proportionately are more likely to have um commit suicide or have um different types of depressions based upon the types of um, uh, kind of social barriers that do not give them the full suite of dignity and, and, and permission to love. I I mean, does that make sense? Like, I mean, are are we, are we, are we really that much further along than we are in the late, you know, 1700s or 1800s when this was made? I'd like to think we are. I unfortunately think you're onto something, but at the same time, it's a weird mix because the, the idea of, at least in the U.S., of someone having their future completely decided for them, I feel like is mostly not a thing. I guess maybe for some people it is, but this idea of being forced into a relationship that you know nothing about <laughs> is almost completely dormant. Um, but the other side of the coin of being disregarded in terms of your feelings i feel like that is still very much a thing at least with certain groups i mean yeah we still live in a a world that is defined by cis heteronormative patriarchy like that's still a a fixture of of our of our lived experience of our lived world um like it just so happens that we are able to call it for what it is that we have a language to be able to address it and to understand that what is what is normative is not what we take to be normative does not make it uh, the sole primary uh, lived experience that not everything else is an outlier simply because um, one fashion of living. Uh, is taken to be uh, the most popular, I guess. Yeah, I would also say that when I, with regards to like like what Alex was saying, as far as like parents choosing who people are going to marry and whatnot, um, I think it is important to note that in certain regions, even in the U.S. and whatnot, uh, particularly I think relegated to uh, certain classes and whatnot. Um, there's a more nuanced version of that happening as far as who you can marry and who you should marry as far as, you know, where you go to college and that kind of thing. So um, it is, I still think it's still extremely relatable, um, not from a completely lived-in experience of a one-to-one uh, ratio, but there, this kind of bullshit doesn't really ever fully go away. When we, I think, have children, we have these expectations for them. Even if we, even if our expectation is literally just wanting the best for them, the the best is an image in our mind, whether we like it or not, and it does dictate our actions. Um, and it's up to us to obviously fight against that. Uh, 
or or not. But um, I, I would say while we're definitely not in this territory uh, that this era is in, um, there are certainly people out there who are probably going to be victims to a more nuanced version of this uh, kind of uh, you must pass down your legacy and all that kind of thing uh, or adhere to traditional values uh and not upset the apple cart type thinking. Uh, the other, I guess the, the, the flip side to that is, Alex, you brought up, you know, the, like a, a parallel, which is the type of um, torment that um, Rose and Jack had in uh, Titanic. And it was kind of a similar, kind of an unrequited, very brief relationship. They only had this finite amount of time, but yet it was very, um, you know, well-loved and intense and all of that. I, and I don't know if, if I were to watch Titanic with fresh eyes and had never seen it, like maybe a week from now, I, I still don't think I would feel anywhere near the type of, heartache or anything that i had with these two characters or for that matter Ooh, what was maybe... there, there's some there, there's some bad acting in titanic oh boy yeah this is true this is true i was like let's like or or does it matter i'm just trying to figure out like like maybe you just can't separate well, the source material and the execution of it in my also, in my analogy marion and eloise are smart and stay on land so they have that going <laughs> there was there was that i knew i was gonna end <laughs> Um, but yeah, oh, sorry, I got derailed in my own thought. Like, do you think that that it, that there is something about it being even more taboo that makes us buy into the romance of it that much more? That is that kind of conceit that makes it work that much more? Because um, I, I mean, I was not to, to compare like apples to apples, you know, in such a way, but I I had a similar type of gasp at the end of. Um, uh, Brokeback Mountain, where Jake Gyllenhaal goes back into the closet and he notices that the shirts were folded together. You know, like that that moment was also just to me floored me um, emotionally you know, when I saw that. You know, similar to that scene with the the portrait uh, as well. Um, and so, I, I'm, uh, it's just it's interesting. I don't I I, I just can't think of a, a recent kind of scenario where I felt as deeply moved by romance it just happens that both of them happen to be with these same-sex couples yeah i think it's well i think there's something no go ahead no you sir okay uh (laughs) what well (laughs) i think uh there's something that's really unfortunately um easy to grasp from same sex relationships in these movies where it is forbidden. And yet at the same time, it feels like because of that, it's grasped onto so much tighter by the people who are involved in it that makes it way more um, emotional for the viewer. And I don't know if that's a good thing. Maybe it's, it's terrible that we have not moved in society. I mean, I know I have, but in general, we have plenty of people uh, in this country and around the world who obviously have totally not moved on to the idea of people embracing same sex and other relationships that should be acceptable in this era and should have always been acceptable. 
Um, but it, it seems like that I, I feel like I'm kind of feel like I'm getting what you're saying, Brian, is that those particularly have landed that much more just because of their somewhat forbidden nature. Yeah, I will say to what Alex is saying that there is a very troubling trend of writing a gay romance and then having to kill off one of the characters, whether it's because they die of AIDS or because they're the victim of a hate crime or something. There's a there's always a tendency, especially by a hetero writer, uh, to sensationalize the romance um, for what they consider to be, you know, gravity or shedding a light on the quote-unquote issues. Uh, but then that's what they end up foregrounding, uh, and the actual romance fades into the background. What I liked about Portrait of a Lady on Fire is that even if they are not destined to be together. I think you could largely write the script uh, as a heterosexual relationship and change very little about the dialogue, you know. Um, this just as easily applies to class issues or race issues or, um, or even just wrong place, wrong time uh, type relationship, you know, meet-cutes and whatnot. Um, but I think what transpires between the two is genuinely romantic, and what I loved was that the film had a resistance to the impulse to pull them apart by external forces, um, while the era and the society they live in is certainly not going to be tolerant of what they are and whatnot. Um, it's mostly an, an internal struggle between the two of them and their uh, ideologies between the life they want and the life they think uh, they, they're actually capable of living and where they differ in that respect. And so because the conflict was between the two of them, I thought that's what ultimately made this movie more human than a lot of recent LGBT films. Yeah, the other point I think that you you, you touched on too is that it, even if let's say this didn't even have the um, the LGBTQ romantic angle to this, uh, it still would have been broken up because of the class issue, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, she was just the artist; she was there to paint and leave, right? So there was no end game uh, to this. There was no class elevator by which she was gonna, or he if it was if it was in that um more traditional sense that th that that was ever going to happen either so that kind of finite nature of the romance in, in whether or not it's in this case or if you fell in love with a girl when you were at summer camp or your girlfriend left because you just had to go to different colleges, you know, that, that idea that you're watching the tunnel close uh, on what was a, uh, a loving relationship. And there's just that finite sense of time. There's just, you know, things, things happen. You can't control it other than soak in the moment of when it's happening. You know what? That's another part of this that I feel like is is really easy to grasp onto. Is there's so much relatability to this idea of um, 
you know, the movie that I, I believe the four of us reviewed, First Rule I Loved, is, is that a movie oh, that great the four one. of us yes. did? Yeah, that was amazing. And I, I know that that is a, a same-sex film as well, but at the same time, that, that film is, like, totally relatable, this idea of whether or not it is someone you actually love, the first person that you latch onto and you base a lot of your early lives, um, you know, person-to-person romantic relationships off of uh, is, is pretty fascinating. And then you see that in this film in a lot of ways at the same time in a, in a much different era, but yeah. Yeah, but it, it does suffer uh, in a good way. The characters from that kind of all eyes on me mentality, which is when you're in a relationship, you're not just dating the other person, but you're also dating them in the eyes of others. And you have to be okay with both sides of that equation. And when we're talking about something like First Girl I Loved, you know, most teenagers do not have the emotional intelligence to be okay with that latter side of the relationship, with with any relationship, whether it's same sex or uh, regular hetero or everything, few and far between, whatever. But what other people think at that age is super paramount and crucial. And then in something like uh, Portrait, uh, it's, you know, uh, almost just as crucial because it it's going to dictate your actual livelihood. The, you know, you're cut off from your family, especially in an era like that. You have no real means of working, especially when you're a female. So there's one more thing that we definitely need to talk about before we get to final readings and I'll bring it up in a second. Does it but rhyme what? with shmushmorshin? That's good. That's, that's pretty wonderful, Nick. I'm glad you said it that way. That's perfect. Um, what movie is that from? I'm, I'm trying knocked to remember. Knocked Up. Okay. When that's she was going up the ladder, I actually thought of Knocked <laughs> Up because I just had Jonah Hill's voice in my head going, yeah, it's just, that's just gravity, man. Wow. Um, so a question I did have, and maybe this is answered and I just missed it. Do we have a confirmation that the original painter who drew the original portrait was in fact a male? Yeah, uh, yes. I don't think it's... It is? I thought they said he... I seem to remember it... Yeah, boy, no. I mean, I can't hmm. really point or recall the line, but I could have sworn there was an exchange in which it's admitted that he basically wouldn't stand for it, but maybe I'm, I'm wrong. Mm. Okay. Uh, th- that totally makes sense. And I, I meant to go back and watch the beginning again. I just didn't. Um, Cause you know, I've got so much going on right now, <laughs> but um, at the same time, um, it is interesting. The idea of, of somebody not wanting to put, uh, Heloise in that position of, of having to be betrothed, and especially since it's based on this portrait, that's very interesting. So, but anyways, yeah, that that would totally make sense if it was a man who was uh, trying to paint the portrait beforehand. So, um, in regards to the uh, whole abortion subplot that is going on throughout this film, as I mentioned earlier, that is going on for a good fifteen to twenty minutes as uh, we see the opening part where the admission from Sylvie that, yes, she is pregnant and doesn't want to be, um, we, we see some of the early attempts uh, of her to 
stop the pregnancy where she's literally is running back and forth on the beach, uh, trying to collect certain, um, herbs from, uh, where they are and, uh, create a, a drink that she can have that will have her no longer be pregnant. And then we have the actual, um, abortion scene that happens, which it, it's weird because it was, it was not, preachy or political to me and maybe that's just my reading of it but i feel like it just is just literally just giving the facts of everything that could possibly like go on in terms of someone in that and again i'm a man i have no real i i can never have an, a true feeling or opinion on this so it's difficult to talk about and speculate on but at the same time this idea of, of a woman going through this very much non-medical professional abortion uh, and to have a baby crawling over her in that time, which I'm sure is just an incredibly emotional moment that nobody wants to take part in in any part of their lives. Um, but at the same time, as I was, I was just saying a couple minutes ago, it doesn't feel politicized in terms of one way or the other where it's saying you should be this or you should be that it's just stating the reality of the situation of she's going through this moment where she is stopping this pregnancy and the reality is is you're gonna have to live on with that in one way or the other and even if it's what she wanted that's just what it is and it's uh, it's it's really something yeah how did you unpack that symbolism of, of the the baby crawling over her at the moment the procedure was being done. I'm, as you were speaking, I, I was going through a bunch of scenarios in my head. How did you guys, how did you guys interpret that? I mean, I, I feel I, like that woman is not going to get a good rating on Yelp. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really know how to interpret that. Um, it, I guess it's, it was kind of meant to console her. But at the same time, it also is it's a bittersweet reminder of like the the cost of life. I I'm, guess. I'm with mm. Toussaint in that while it's ultimately horrifying, the image in and of itself is weirdly comforting. Uh, right. Because the baby has no knowledge of, you know, anything that is happening in that moment. And I almost feel like there's always something comforting about an adult who does take in a baby. I, I don't know how to explain it, but where you where you gaze upon them and you and you realize that at one point in a human's life they have no real uh, conception of anything in the world, which also means that they are unburdened by anything as heavy as, you know, an abortion or anything uh, that uh, heartbreaking. Um, obviously, it is also horrifying that someone should have to have a living reminder, but I, I didn't take uh, and I think this is a testament to the actresses who played, uh, the actress who played Sophie's, I think, to her performance, but I didn't take her performance in that scene or her emotional reaction to be completely uh aghast at what was happening just an extremely uh mixed reaction which is that as horrifying as it is there's almost something maybe poetic that for a fleeting moment she did at least get to have some kind of closure with a life she was never going to lead well oh, and yeah. 
the, the other part about it though is that there's I feel like there's nothing malicious about what's so and that's the other thing that's just always been so crazy to me about this idea of um women having abortions is that there's nothing malicious about what she's doing she doesn't hate children or she doesn't hate this idea of her being pregnant she just doesn't want to have a baby at this time in her life and we don't know anything about also what led to this it, it's it yeah it's it's great there's the social stigma um surrounding it because it, it's fairly implied that this woman is not married or in a relationship and like she works at the behest of the countess and who knows like if she were to if she were to you know have this child to term like what kind of life could she be able to as, as, as cruel as it sounds as, as awful as it sounds like it's it's a symptom of how awful the world is to her gender for that matter and it's just like no it it, it it is and also too it seems like there's a at least the feel I got is there's a community of these these and not, not that all of them have had abortions or anything like that but there's this community of women who realize that all they have is each other um, and they are wanting to build each other up in a way, even if it's somewhat in secret. Um, uh, the scene, obviously, with the fire is is very moving, at least in my reading of it, um, in terms of these women being together and just living life and trying to be there for each other. Um, and then the, the actual abortion scene that we're talking about right now is is you know her just trying to not even console her about it but just say that to have some outlet for her to attempt to safely move away from what she doesn't want in her life so yeah yeah i i I wonder how much of it is our own kind of uh, projection on this and i and i i don't know what the prevailing attitudes were about that procedure at that time but I, I keep on thinking about this on a, a class level, which is, you know, what what would her um, economic viability to have carried the, the baby to term at that point? I'm not trying to like say like, oh, then just get abortion, like not to be, you know, but like the reality, but she would have had to have made that type of um, assessment. And maybe it it's the scene of that juxtaposition between the child crawling over her is like, well, not now. Like, you know, I will be a mother at some point unless that procedure was so, I don't remember, was there any discussion about whether that the procedure was gonna be one that would um, devastate her capacity to be pregnant later on or, or whatever? But it I did, think it was just this specific one uh, yeah, not her capacity in the future to have children. Yeah, so it might be just like, yeah, I'll be a mom at some point. I just choose not to do it now. Um, How about... How about the other? Oh, I'm sorry, Brian. Go well, ahead. Well, yeah, one more point is that you know because it, it makes because it, it the baby that was crawling over that bed, if that was the you know the little um, domicile or the uh, little hut of the old lady that was there, presumably, did we even know who the mother was of that baby? Was she off somewhere else because that's what that old lady might have at one point been a maid herself, and now it's her job to fend for the, the children or the, the infants of the young women in that community in the event that they get um, uh, get pregnant and all of that. So Yeah, because um, she seemed a little old for that. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, I don't mean that as like a 
judging. I'm just saying, like, I, I, I got the vibe that the, at least the baby for sure uh, was the product of her trade, which is unfortunately unwanted children uh, born, yes. born yeah. and not born. No. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, like, so I, I think that that's just kind of a, and I don't know how to, you know, it, 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 it sounds cold and, and, and too, like, like Freakonomics, you know, like, well, this, you know, this is all these things, but like that, that may have been how transactional the, the idea of pregnancy was for women in that socioeconomic class at that moment, where it was like, look, there, this is not something that we can do right now and I'll just get the p- procedure and that's all it is I mean, and it wouldn't have had the type of maybe uh, maybe moral um, uh, kind of baggage that I think that it has attached in, in our era at this moment so the other thing about that though is the scene that immediately follows the abortion scene which is them back at the house also another thing I want to mention this is totally off what we're talking about now but the scenes that happen at nighttime with the fire crackling in here are so good in terms of cinematography. They yeah. really remind me of the movie It Comes at Night in terms of the way it's able to capture the look of nighttime um, in a camera lens. So good. Anyways, uh, moving away from that, that scene that follows where she tells her to get on the floor in pretty much assumed position for her to stand in there and then have that drawing done of her as if she were the one performing. Um, and it almost feels somewhat cathartic uh, for Sophie's character as she is totally fine getting down and doing this painting, drawing, whatever you want to call it. Um, that to me was just as powerful of a scene because of the way that it captured what was going on at the current time for all three women. I agree. Yeah, I, I I did actually think that that scene uh, felt like the like the natural continuation of the the abortion scene. Like I needed to happen uh, for all the characters involved for them to sort of like <laughs> I, I I guess like put a put a cap on it to, to to really sort of like come together in another communal sense to really just like share that experience together and to make something out of it. Yeah, I just gotta say that sing along uh, was fantastic. I am always pretty much a sucker for a movie that has no musical element to suddenly stop in its tracks and come up with a reason to have people kind of burst out in song, whether it's a literal fourth wall breaking or it's in universe. Uh, but the community of women on the beach. Uh, kind of going into that shared uh, rhythm and uh, chanting, which uh, was gorgeous, I thought. If I would have maybe one more question to pose uh, to the panel, yeah, I'm assuming I'll, <laughs> I would assume that we're all going to rewatch this uh, at some point. And oh, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering what you're going to hone in on uh, in your second viewing of it. For me, I really want to follow and think about the mythological illusion of looking back and and really think about how that was executed. I mean, usually when they make something so explicit like that, you kind of roll your eyes like, okay, you're trying too hard. But like that one was so wonderful, the idea of, like, I want to have the memory of the poet. Yes. Okay. 
And I, I want to, I, and when, when she was reading the story, like she was reading it so fast and I was trying to keep up with the, you know, usually like subtitles aren't an issue, but I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And as maybe it was cause also 11 o'clock at night, I was maybe not as focused, but like that, that whole um, decision and to how do I properly frame this in my memory? So it will maximize its sweetness and loving, you know, it moving forward. I, I, that's the part that I want to, you know, when I view it again, I want to really just, you know, just conquer and try to see it as, as, as clearly as possible in my second viewing of it. Yeah. I, um, I got to agree with you in that. I very much appreciated the way they incorporated the story of Orpheus, which is kind of an overdone, uh, fable to essentially bring up when you're trying to impart uh, gravitas to your drama. However, what I liked was by the time uh, it was brought up, it was less about the film winking and saying, look, we're doing the same story, and more about how art is fundamentally a subjective experience, and the importance and value behind it is what we project onto it, uh, and the conversation that derives between the two of them, or the three of them, really, uh, as to the uh, ending of Orpheus' story and whatnot, and what it says about all three of them. Um, so I appreciated that it didn't stop at, uh, you know, where most movies would, and it went further and actually included uh, a nice little uh, kind of a summation of the subjectivity of art, which is obviously very important to a movie like this that focuses on a painter and the way she's processing her own lived-in experience uh, through art and continues to do so even after uh, the experience is over. Um, yeah, so I... Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that, sorry. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will say that I am very much looking forward to following Heloise's character in the second viewing because I feel like it's really easy on the first viewing to not be sure about anything about her character and her emotions and what we're going to be seeing with her probably till about halfway through the film. So I think knowing how the film ends, knowing where she's going to end up, knowing what her character wants and her character needs in terms of what the film is telling us. Um, it'll be interesting to watch that from the beginning, from her perspective. I think that um, of the things that I'm going to, I don't know. That's 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 a difficult question. It's like I feel like this is just a film that I would love to to live in again. Um, I think I guess one scene that I really want to pay more attention to is the the bonfire scene. Just kind of like the symbolism of like why is it that she grazed the fire and why is it that she's not perturbed by that at all and like she's not shaken by that. It's like that's just a very evocative and beautiful image, and also the the. I, I guess the the motif of fire in this film is like how it pops up occasionally, especially when um, Marianne is like looking at the original incomplete portrait and how um, the the flame from the candle sort of like grazes uh, uh, the surface of the painting and it just sort of like burns up like a hole, um, like a, like a fire on like what is essentially her chest 
and it's like over her heart and it's just like that's very it is it, it's a very beautiful image and, and i guess i'm i'm trying to like sort of like decipher that and like how i feel about that that image and that that symbolism i wholeheartedly agree i think the way this movie uses fire is just so lit um i can't even indeed describe it <laughs> Like, you know, Nick, you'd said it before, like, you know, and the I'll idea say of it again. fire. <laughs> but the idea of, of fire and water, you know, now, you know, if we're focusing on the fire while we're surrounded by water in the islands, too, it just adds that layer of inevitable extinguish, that it's going to be extinguished at some point. You know, obviously the fuel of that runs out, but that, that persistent threat that there's no way to take this fire off of the island as well, given what we know about the nature of it. So, I don't know. That just not that I don't know if that was an unintentional symbolism or whatever, but that 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 seems like that would be worth pulling on as well. Thinking about it. Oh, absolutely, and especially um, you also got to compare and contrast that with the uh, the fate of her sister. One died in water, essentially, and so the other one's going to live in fire. Um, I definitely think that there's some poetry to that. I agree. Right on. So I think we should go to final ratings. Um, I will start. Uh, a couple of things that I did want to mention that uh, I did not get to when we were just talking in general about this film. Um, very interesting, the idea of um, them taking drugs via the armpit, which I, uh, I guess I just missed on from other parts of, uh, humanity, but, um, that was interesting in this film and I guess it's a time period thing, but I, I was just kind of blown away by the image, at least, of, of the first of her just kind of fingering that into her armpit. Uh, and that's the way of her to, in, and take the drugs, which I thought was, uh, very interesting, um, anyways, other than that point of it, and just, uh, also about, uh, some other parts about the film and, and the way that the characters go together, I, I guess I'll just end by saying that I thought this was a beautiful film. I thought this was so well put together. So many of the actual elements in terms of the way this film is shot, the way that the, the screen looks, um, this is just a beautiful film. Oh, the other thing I was going to mention uh, was that uh, both myself and my wife, uh, Emily, who thought this was a fantastic film as well, uh, we both wanted to see uh, a, even if it was just like a 15 second glimpse of Marion actually painting the portrait of a lady on fire because we see the actual painting that she does early on in the film and we don't really see it again. Um, but it would have been nice to see this, even if it was just kind of like a quick cutaway of her actually painting that and what that entailed for her, as it obviously took place long after her encounter with Heloise. So that would have been something nice to see. Anyways, getting back to final thoughts. Um, I thought this was a beautiful film. I really enjoyed almost every minute of it. And um, even though I'm not going to give this a perfect rating, I'm very much in looking forward to watching this again. I, I do know, and I guess, Nick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this has already been put into the Criterion Collection, so this will have a release sometime later this year. And this is a film that I definitely will be purchasing. That is um, correct. Yep, 
I'll, I'll definitely be buying it uh, in the Criterion form because it'll be totally worth it um, just to have the even just to have the really good print of this on Blu-ray. Um, this is a wonderful film, masterfully done, uh, and at least on the first viewing, I'll give it four out of five. I think it's very well done, um, and I'm a huge fan. Moving on to Nick. Yeah, I absolutely loved it as well. Um, I It's one of those movies that, while I kind of like Alex, it's not so much that I think it's the uh, all-time classic. I also can't say it does anything wrong whatsoever, and most of what it does, it does uh, oh so right. Uh, so I give it four out of five. I think it's a wonderful romance, um, just a gorgeous film, the way it's shot and whatnot. And honestly, one of the more accessible foreign language films I've seen in a long time which obviously for myself who watches quite a bit of foreign film is not necessarily something I'm always looking for but I will say there is value in every once in a while coming across one where I'll watch it and I'll say you know what this could actually cross over and I could recommend to somebody if they indicate that they're into certain uh, you know genres or whatnot. Do, do you know, did A, did Hulu pick this up after COVID-19 happened? And the second part I would ask, did they pick it up after Parasite won the Academy Award for Best Picture? Um, I don't know the exact details. What I do know is essentially, I believe this was predetermined before COVID-19, okay. but I definitely think it was a recent... Um, like after Parasite did so well, they had their eye out for the next big foreign film, and certainly this was pretty much the next big one. Um, so I do think they were following those breadcrumbs, but I don't think it was an explicit, um, well, now that we can't show it in theaters, uh, you know, we'll show it. I think they just made it, or maybe, I don't know. Um, I do, I will admit though, that could potentially be true because of the fact that it was a very short announcement. It was about three or four days prior to it getting released on Hulu, which was only like last week, that people started like circulating the rumor and, and everyone got super psyched. So, uh, yeah, it's good. Uh, and, and I will, I will say, uh, I was very happily surprised that this was on Hulu, just on a streaming service that was available if you had a subscription because. I would. I just assumed it was going to be a rental or a 19.99 purchase, and the fact that it was available um, made me very excited to watch it, and I'm, I'm glad it was. Absolutely. So yeah, four out of five for me. Uh, I'm gonna go slightly higher. I mean, I know, again, we just, it's hard to give perfection out to anything, but this was approaching that for me in terms of just a the whole experience of it. And I just, I, I, I just, I, I, I said it before. I, I just don't think I've had such a, an affecting uh, film experience in such a long time. And, you know, more and more, as you guys talk, just more memories keep on popping up about things I forgot to even kind of talk about uh, with this movie. So I'm mean, four, four point five out of five for me. And just even like, just the opening, the, the premise of how to, secretly track the small nuances like the small of her neck 
the the curve of her ear of and and how to like just that opening part of that just leads into the attraction was so so interesting but for me the, there was a line in this that kind of made me fall over um and it was i think maybe one of the times right before i think they fully uh made love for the first time and she said i had to look it up because i knew i always mess up quotes and it was the one about um do all lovers feel they're inventing something and i don't know what it was about the way in which that line was delivered and to me that was something that i don't think has ever been so succinctly captured the unique emotion of when you're in it when you're in love and when it's so exciting and it is new that's that's exactly what it is i don't know it just to me that just really uh, just was such a great intersection of of everything that made this so touching uh, for me as you said the denouement was just uh, breathtaking for me so I, I i this was just a great movie 4.5 out of 5 for brian yeah i uh i'm gonna give this a, a four out of five i thought this was such a such a beautiful intimate and and just it was a heartfelt film i i really enjoyed it again like the words that i used to to describe it are sedate and sensuous at the same time um yeah I, I love that line too. It was like, do all lovers feel like they are creating something new? It's like, yeah, it's like, that's, you can't really explain it to somebody. It's just like, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you describe a, 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 like a breeze that hits your, that hits your face. Like when you haven't felt that before, like in your entire life, like, how do you really describe that? It's like, it's just, it's a really beautiful film. I can't wait to actually like watch it again. I probably won't watch it again tonight, but I will probably watch it again within um, sometime within the next week if I can find a time for it. Um, yeah, I just this movie. Watch was it with your gift. gal pal. Uh, we'll see. She's not really into this sort of stuff, but like we'll I'll, I'll try to. Uh, no historical dramas. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Oh, that was great. Lesbians! Wow, wow, that was great. Uh, My mic was sorry, Brian. That wasn't me, <laughs> Brian. You were gonna say something? Oh no, that was just uh, just to follow up with Tucson. It's this again, like just it, it, the the banality sometimes of films that you kind of get caught on when you're on the dad track of watching <laughs> movies with your kids, and when something like this. Uh, falls in your lap that um, just reminds you of just um, that those those places where you forgot where you could feel you know uh, in such a way and that's just not you know just because life happens and maybe I think part of it too and, and even just to kind of sidetrack from the uh, it being about love it, the romantic element of it too it's you know I mean the the idea of when do you get to um, the, 
to say goodbye, you know, and when you're away from people, when we're away from people at this moment, and there's so much uncertainty um, uh, of that, that that also affected me too. So I, I kept on thinking about um, that separation that we sometimes are forced to be away from people. And, and so that also had, to me, had echoes of it, even though it was not romantic, it was just that idea of distance and, and the uncertainty of being able to say uh, and see people again. That just, that was the other kind of layer to this that was just so, um, so uh, deeply uh, touching to me. Right on. Yeah, this is uh, overall, I think we can all agree this is just a very, very good film and um, one that I'm glad that we did a episode on. So well done to everybody. And obviously, again, thanks to Nick for uh, pushing this across the finish line. Very good suggestion. I try. Thank you, Nick. You do. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, if anybody out there has any thoughts on Portrait of a Lady on Fire, always feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com or to also try to find us on Facebook or Twitter at Film Tank Show. You can also find all of our episodes on filmtankshow.com or on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify uh, at Film Tank Show. Not really sure what our next episode is going to be. We're kind of taking it week to week at this point with everything that's going on. But um, I think we've all pretty much enjoyed getting together uh, via Skype here for the last uh, couple weeks and probably going to continue. So uh, hopefully next week we'll have another episode for everybody to listen in on if they are so interested. Brian, as always, I know it's been a while, but thank you very much for joining us. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I think uh, this it's this format I can probably get to a little bit easier. <laughs> so, But I'm, I was very, uh, very uh, pleased to be back on. It was such a great, great film. It's, and it was awesome. I was gonna, you guys again. Oh, so sorry. I was just going to say, though, about the format, that it's nice. We kind of joked about it last week that it's almost unfortunately good that this virus forced us to figure out how to do this um because now we know how to do this over skype and how to record and all that so uh definitely don't be a stranger because we can always pull one of these out every once in a while nice yeah no this will be great yeah and um you know it's uh, we hit on this last week when we were on with anna but especially during this time um you know I, i feel like in you know this it's not necessarily 100 you know meaning for everything but um i feel like we are very fortunate to have the opportunity to just have this pre-existing thing that we've done before that we can get together and just chat about movies and we have a comfortable repertoire between the four of us even even though we haven't done an episode in a while with brian um so this is just great that we have this opportunity just to get together and chat about movies and have a good time during this really unique and uh, scary time that we're going through right now so and I, I believe me I, I look forward to this I look forward to just the the text chains that we got going on about the silliness of movies and memes and all that stuff it's it's awesome well, um, thank you very much to Brian, uh, and thank you very much uh, to Toussaint and Nick uh, for thank joining you. me. And um, thank you very much You're to welcome. our listeners for. 
oh boy, this guy. Uh, and thank you very much to our listeners for joining us. Um, we we you know thanks we, for bearing in, uh, bearing with us, I should say. Uh, bearing in, bearing yeah. right in, uh, <laughs> nice and deep, like no, uh, but for uh, bearing with us during these Skype podcasts because I actually think that they came out okay, but obviously they're not going to sound uh, quite like they do in the studio. No, it's, it's, it's different, but it's, um, you know, I feel like it's, it's good and unique and, you know, in some aspects, there are some parts of it that are better probably. So, uh, definitely. I was just going to say, like, I, I find it so fascinating that in like 20 years time if i were to listen back to uh last week's episode that we'll have an actual time capsule of us talking about the coronavirus and what we were doing Mm -hmm. which is pretty rare i mean now we live in the era where that's possible but obviously um just thinking about like things like the black plague or something uh you know it's wait that is that racist is that what it's called yeah, it's called yeah. a black plague. Okay. It's literally, it's literally called was, a black plague. I, I it was, it was not called the dark it. plague. I thought it was confusing. It was something else, and I'm like, wait a minute, did I switch my words around? Well, anyway, not 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 a lot of people from the Seventh Seal doing podcasts. So. That is true, but they should be because <laughs> let me tell you, their philosophical musings are like a plus. Oh, Max Max von Sydow. Oh, yeah, that's funny. Fascinating that we are making our own uh, uh, audio diaries. Uh, I love bi- Bioshock about like <laughs> what happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This oh, will be all that's left after Trump kills us all. Environmental <laughs> storytelling. Yeah, uh, that's a good oh, look, a concept well, diary. <laughs> Uh, well, from uh, Brian Turnbow and then Nick Cheney, Tucson and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Film Tank, and we'll be catching up with you next time. <laughs>